If I told you I wanted to talk about a hobbit and a magical wardrobe, I'm confident you would know exactly which two 20th century authors I'm going to mention next, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. They've written some of the most loved fantasy literature of all time. They were also friends who survived the turmoils of World War I, and they both loved Jesus. Hi, I'm Charles Morris, and on this episode of the Great Stories Podcast, I want to return to an interview I did two years ago with the man who published the first book to explore the work of these two men in light of the spiritual crisis sparked by World War I. His name is Dr. Joseph Leconte, and he has insights on the faith, writing, and friendship of Tolkien and Lewis that'll capture your imagination, and I believe lead you to Jesus. So let's get started. Welcome to Haven Today. Here it is, the beginning of a week. It's Monday, and we're going to New York City, where we haven't been for quite a while. And on the line with us from the King's College there in Lower Manhattan, a Christian school in Manhattan, is Dr. Joseph Leconti. And Joe, uh, someday we're going to have Italian food together in New York, but I want to welcome you for the very first (laughs) time to Haven Today. Thanks so much, Charles. Thanks so much for having me on the show. I look forward to sharing an Italian meal with you. (laughs) I need to share with our listeners how I even came to be in contact with you. It was one of those things where my wife was reading a book a couple of years ago, and she just kept reading me excerpts, and they just kept getting better. (laughs) Next Sunday, 100 years of what's been called the Great War. We don't think a lot about World War I. There aren't people alive today that uh, served in that war. And yet, why did they call it the Great War? And we'll get to the book you've written, which is excellent, and why I wanted to have you on. But you are a scholar. Why did they call it the Great War? Well, that's a terrific question, Charles. Uh, I think the short answer is they really had no mental category for the kind of industrialized slaughter that these men were experiencing on a daily basis. I mean, men are, are dying by the thousands each day in this machinery, the, the tanks, the mortars, the machine guns, uh, the barbed wire, the flamethrowers, the poison gas. I mean, the Europeans had never seen a war like this before. And so all they could think to call it was the Great War. And of course, it quickly became a global conflict, started out as a regional kind of skirmish, and then quickly becomes this global uh, catastrophe, and they don't know how to stop it. So, yeah, it's a great Mm. war, all right, and it's a disaster for Europe, as we'll get into. Mm. Mm. And for you, it's personal, this great war. You mind explaining that to me? Yes, it is. You know, there are so many families whose lives were disrupted by the great war, and my family was one of them. My my grandfather on my dad's side, Michael uh, LaConte, uh, he was in the United States doing what a lot of Italian immigrants were doing. He was trying to raise money, send it back home to his family in southern Italy. Uh, and then when war breaks out, here he is in New York and the, uh, traveling around the country uh, as well. And the, the Italians want him to fight uh, f- for them. The Italians are on the Allied side in the First World War. They want him to fight in the Italian army. The Americans give him an offer. And they say, fight for us and we'll make you an American citizen. 
I don't know how long my grandfather wow. thought about those options, but he chose the fight for the Americans. He was with the 91st Division. And by the time he got into that war, it was in some ways at the worst possible time for the Americans. It was the Battle of Muzargon mm. in, in 1918. Uh, in the summer, late summer of 1918. This is the deadliest battle for the Americans. And my grandfather is somewhere in France in the thick of it. Uh, he didn't speak much about that war. He survived, naturalized as a citizen, and then uh, settles in Brooklyn and uh, New York, opens up a little uh, grocery delivery business, and the rest is history, Charles. Mm. And the other side, too. You had another yeah. side of your family also yeah, you know, I'm, uh, in the it's, war. A, it's Italian on both sides. My mom's uh, family from a little island off of Naples. My grandfather, Giuseppe Joseph Aiello, for whom I'm named, he left <laughs> Italy in, in the aftermath uh, of this war in 1921. Mm. He was 16 years old, and he comes to, uh, comes to, to Brooklyn, New York, uh, with his brother and leaves it leaves everything because Southern Italy, Italy as a country, but also Southern Italy especially, was so devastated by the war. The Italians, even though they're on the winning side of the war, they lost half a million men, Charles. Half a million uh, soldiers mm. were killed. Uh, Italian soldiers were killed. And so the economy of Italy was devastated. And then, of course, a year after my grandfather came to the United States there in 1922, well, guess who sweeps into power? Uh, in in Italy, it's Benito Mussolini, of course, and then wow. Italy and is off on, on, on a fascist course. Yeah, and then and yes. then we're off to the races with fascism. Mm. We're going to get to your book, which is the real reason I wanted to get in touch <laughs> with you in the first place. But but yeah. nobody knows much about the Great War today. Yeah, why it, was the remarkable. Great War significant for us today? Yeah, that's the right question to ask. I mean, um, many historians, if not most, would say that, in a sense, the modern world began with the Great War. It, it was one of those hinges of history. And I, part of the reason, Charles, is the devastating effects of the war, not only the human costs, the material costs, economic, but then the aftermath of the war. Because if you think about it, the, the most destructive ideologies of the 20th century, the most destructive ideologies really in, in human history, communism and fascism, uh, they take off in the 1920s. And the reason they really take off in the 1920s is because so many people are disillusioned by uh, these, this Western, European, democratic, capitalist, Christian civilization, quote unquote. Uh, they've seen the nations of Europe, the so-called Christian nations of Europe, engage in what you could only call a mutual suicide pact. And so, so now the level of disillusionment and despair that's come out of the war, it's so deep, it's so intense, that it just sets loose all of these ideologies. And that, of course, shapes the 20th century in so many profound ways. We're still living with the effects uh, mm -hmm. of that catastrophe. Mm. If you just joined us, you're listening to Dr. Joseph Leconte. He's uh, based at uh, the King's College in New York City, a Christian school, uh, and he also spends part of his time in Washington, D.C. All right, Joe, uh, it's time for me to tell everybody why I've wanted to have you on this program. You <laughs> sure. have done something I don't think anybody's ever done before. So I got to give the name and the subtitle of your book, A Hobbit, A Wardrobe, and A Great War, How J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis Rediscovered Faith, Friendship, 
and heroism in the cataclysm of 1914 to 1918. I'm not asking you to brag on yourself because it really is true. You have woven a thread here that no one else has done. You mind explaining the Great War and how you put the Lord of the Rings author and also the Chronicles of Narnia author and put them together. How do they mesh? Thank you for that question, Charles. You know, there are tremendously good, important books about both of these authors, uh, Tolkien and Lewis, and I've benefited from many of them. And I think what people sometimes miss, because they're not thinking like the historian thinks, and I'm thinking about the context of the lives of these men and the, and the context of their writings, their great epic works, The Lord of the Rings, The Chronicles of Narnia, uh, The Space Trilogy. As the historian, I always want to know, well, what helped produce this work? And when you realize that both of these men, J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, they're both combat veterans. They both fought in the First World War. When I learned that fact for the first time several years ago, before, uh, before 2014, when I started to think about the centennial of the beginning of the First World War, I'm starting to think, well, wait a minute. How is it that I didn't know that? I mean, no man passed through mm-hmm. the fires, the furnace of that conflict unchanged. And Tolkien and Lewis must have been profoundly affected as young men. Tolkien was 24 when, when, when he arrived in France. Lewis was 19. He arrived on his 19th birthday. They saw the worst of it. They endured it. They watched men die. It had to have influenced them. And so I began to wonder, uh, both as an historian and certainly as a, as a Christian historian, how might that experience of war influence their literary imagination? Because if you think about it, both of their epic works well, the theme of war is pretty close to the heart of both of those stories. They're war stories in some mm-hmm. ways. And so that's what, that's what mm-hmm. the book tries to explore. Joe, let's pull that out a little bit more. It, it strikes me as the historian and then someone reading the works of Tolkien and Lewis, uh, and Lewis pretty closely that they really imported some of the images of war, of, of combat in France, I think directly into their works. So if you take, for example, in, in The Lord of the Rings, when Sam and Frodo are approaching Mordor, uh, the dead marshes, the, 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 the graphic, horrible description of the dead marshes and the, the dead bodies floating in the marshes, well, you know what that was? If you talk to historians, you read historians like uh, Martin Gilbert, who wrote a definitive book uh, about the Battle of the yes. Somme, where, where Tolkien fought. <laughs> it's an exact description of what the soldiers in the First World War would have experienced. The, the mortars create these mm. huge craters, the craters filled with water. Men fall into those craters, and they perish, and their bodies are left there days, sometimes weeks on end, and you just discover them. And then Tolkien literally says uh, in a letter to one of his friends, yeah, the, the, the approach to mortar, that owes something to my time in France at the Somme. So there's no way these men could have forgotten some of those images. I'm, per, I'm fully persuaded they worked them uh, in, into both their works. Joe, what you've just said is so significant, so important. Can you elaborate a little bit more for us as we're pondering this great war? Yeah, I've given you, Charles, I've given you a negative example on that. Let me give you a positive example also from Tolkien for a moment. We all probably wonder this incredible character he's created, The Hobbit, And where did he get his idea for The Hobbit? Well, Tolkien says explicitly that his Sam Gamgee, the quintessential Hobbit, one of the most beloved figures in in modern fiction, that Hobbit is based on the ordinary English soldier that he knew in the trenches, 
who he said was so far superior to himself in his courage, in his discipline, uh, in his fortitude. The, the, the Hobbit is based on the ordinary English soldier doing his duty there mm. on the Western Front. Mm. When I first learned that, it just, bl- it just blew my mind away that uh, Tolkien could be so impressed by these men that he fought alongside that it really inspired his literary imagination. It helped him to hang on to the idea of heroism when so many men in his generation in the post-war years had given up on heroism, but Tolkien won't. And that, to me, is just profoundly important. He doesn't become a cynic, and part of the reason he doesn't is he remembers uh, the great sacrifice of those British soldiers that he fought alongside. He lost most of his best friends in, in the First World War, and, and that was a lifelong sadness to him. But by the grace of God and the use of his imagination, boy, he doesn't give up on heroism at all, and he gives it a, a, a real Christian texture and Christian theme. Greatly encouraging story to me. Mm-hmm. The Lord used both of these men to help stoke the fire of faith in each other. That's part of what you're saying in your book. Uh, Explain that to me. Explain how that comes out of the Great War, too. Yeah. Thank you for that question, Charles. If If I had to summarize it with three words, the story of these two men and what they achieved, it would be war, friendship, and beauty. War, friendship, and beauty, Mm. because it's the cataclysm of war that brings these two men together in friendship as they meet there at Oxford in 1926. And then it's their lifelong friendship, their mutual encouragement as Christian writers and thinkers. It's that mutual friendship uh, that makes possible the creation of their epic works, which embody moral beauty, war, friendship, and beauty. Y- you take away any of those elements, and you don't you don't have the Lord of the Rings, and you don't have the yeah. Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, Tolkien said that he never would have completed the, the Lord of the Rings were it not for Lewis's constant encouragement and demands for more, because he would read mm. uh, portions of the Lord of the Rings out loud to Lewis. Every chapter, virtually every chapter, he read out loud to Lewis and would get this instant feedback from him and encouragement to continue with the mm. work. And of course, uh, Tolkien, we can talk about this a little bit more, but Tolkien was uh, the, probably the most important human uh, agent in, in Lewis's life to lead him to Christian faith. Uh, that's certainly how, how Lewis looks back on it, his late night conversation with Tolkien in 1931, when he's, he's not a Christian yet. And of course, there was the death of his mother, which impacted him. Yes, Charles, you're exactly right. It's the emotional impact of lo- losing his mother at such an early age. And then I think the horror, the tragedy of war uh, that deepened his atheism. And so when he emerges from this conflict, he is further away from the Christian gospel than he's ever been. And I, I, you have to begin to suspect, is this not the providential hand of God that of all the people mm. he can meet mm-hmm. at Oxford at, as a young man, a young scholar, it's J.R.R. Tolkien, this committed believer, who leads, ultimately helps lead Lewis to Christian faith. It's just a remarkable part of the story. Uh, so you take away either one of these men, and you don't have their epic works. <laughs> I'm pretty convinced of that. Mm-hmm. It's a terrific mm-hmm. part of the story, their lifelong friendship. Absolutely. Joe, I'm so excited. I wish we were together having that uh, <laughs> a plate of Italian food at some some restaurant somewhere in, in, in Manhattan or even Brooklyn, where you're originally from. But as a result of that great war, And Lewis and Tolkien feeding each other's faith in Christ. 
What's the takeaway for us today, 100 years later, after the end of the Great War? Well, there's a couple of things I'd say, Charles. One, of course, is the importance of friendship, not only Tolkien and Lewis, and of course the Inklings, uh, the fellow scholars, fellow Christians who, who met every week in Lewis's rooms, Thursday evenings, and also at the Eagle and Child Pub on Tuesdays. Mutual encouragement, uh, not only in terms of fellowship, but helping each of them to become uh, as good at their craft as they could possibly become. And that's the second part of the point here the commitment to excellence. These men set out not necessarily to change the world per se, but they do want to push back against the worst of what they're encountering and reading uh, and, and feeling in the culture around them, the gloom, the pessimism, the agnosticism, the cynicism, and they're going to push back in their writing. And they're going to do that in a profoundly creative, attractive way. So for me, that's the other part of the takeaway is calling. They're faithful to their calling in a pretty dark, gloomy time mm. when the easy mm. thing to have done in their academic careers would have been to kind of go along with the skepticism and the agnosticism of their age, but they don't. They push back and they assert these, these deep Christian truths, biblical truths. Uh, they're embedded in their stories, and look at the effect. Generation after generation are drawn to their stories. And how can our faith be impacted today on this 100th anniversary? Uh, how can we discover faith as a result of those two men and a great war? Well, that's a big question. I'll, I'll just take a stab at it. I mean, what so impresses me about their lives uh, is that they are not going to allow the assumptions of their age uh, about whether it's the utopian delusions <laughs> that are all around them, various schemes to improve the human condition, eugenics, whatever it is, but they're not going to allow that or the gloom and disillusionment to distract them uh, from their callings. And so when you look at the, kind of the level of discipline and commitment and staying at their posts, that to me is probably the most encouraging thing. They just stay at it day after day, year after year, in friendship, in fellowship, and with their creativity. Okay, Joseph, let's talk about the framework of where we are today. In light of uh, freedom that we lack, freedom that we have, uh, oppression around the world, how that impacts Christians and, and our faith, and, and what comes out of Lewis and Tolkien, and then this influence of the Great War. Well, thank you, Charles, for, for, that, uh, for that softball question you've been asking me today. Uh, it's a, You're it's the a expert, great question. Not me. It's a great question. You know, uh, there are always have been threats to human freedom. Uh, there are in our day now. We can, we can name some of them. But certainly in the time in which uh, Lewis and Tolkien lived, be between the great wars, think, think about what's happening, the rise of these totalitarian ideologies, fascism and communism, eugenics, scientism, all these threats to human freedom and human dignity are, on the, are right there. They have a ringside seat to it in Europe. And I, I'm convinced what they did deliberately in their books was to reaffirm the, the dignity, the worth of every human soul. I mean, just think about their stories. The creatures, every uh, animal in Narnia, the creatures in the Lord of the Rings, the various races, they're all caught up in this great contest between good and evil. And their souls are going to be shaped by which side they choose. 
and what they decide to do once they make that choice. Are they going to be faithful to the cause? That, to me, is profoundly important because in the years after the First World War, one of the recurring motifs in literature was, you know, the individual has no power. The individual is demolished, destroyed uh, in the First World War. And so we're just victims of our circumstance, victims of historical change, of economics, of power structures, of race. And Lewis and Tolkien are pushing back against all of these dehumanizing ideologies and insisting upon the image of God in men and women has not been obliterated. It matters supremely. Our moral choices matter. We live in a moral universe. So the dignity of choice uh, that each of their uh, individuals, their creatures, their characters have, and of course the goal is to preserve human freedom against these great threats to freedom, the totalitarian impulse. It's, it reigns in Mordor, the totalitarian threat, uh, mm-hmm. with Sauron, mm-hmm. and of course in the Chronicles of Narnia with the White Witch, where it's, it's always winter and yes. never Christmas. They're pushing back against these totalitarian threats deliberately in their writing, and they're affirming the God-given dignity and freedom of the human person, every soul under heaven. Boy, we need that message today, don't we? Mm, we certainly do. Now, I'm a Christian. You're a Christian. We're awaiting the Lord's return. Is there hope for us today in this world apart from Christ? Well, that's got to be one of the most profound questions we can ask, Charles. Is there hope in the world apart from Christ? You know, I think both Tolkien and Lewis would say, apart from the grace of Christ, apart from the fact that he's coming to redeem everything, as I think Sam put it in The Lord of the Rings, the question he asks, is everything sad going to come untrue? And the answer for the Christian, of course, is yes. Everything sad is going to come untrue when the king returns. So that's the, ba- that's the only basis for hope. That's the deepest basis for hope uh, of the human story, that there will be a, a redemption, a final restoration, and a reclaiming uh, of, of human life. By, by the grace of Christ. So, but apart from that, if we just think about how the world plays out naturally in our fallenness, think about the 20th century. Solzhenitsyn called it the caveman century, the most advanced, mm. civilized Christian nations of Europe went to war twice uh, in its mm. devastating conflicts. That's human nature left unchecked, unredeemed, isn't it? And that's why we need the story of grace and redemption that that both these men, Tolkien and Lewis, have given us. Joseph, what are the spiritual takeaways uh, from the lives of of Lewis and Tolkien and and also having come through this great war a hundred years ago? Yeah, there are huge takeaways here, uh, Charles, and one of them uh, is that the hero, the epic hero, who was at the center of both their stories, even with all of his strength and his wits and his, and his energy and his commitment, the epic hero cannot save the day. He can't save himself. He can't achieve his quest without grace. It's, it's this source of grace and goodness outside of ourselves that is so important uh, to both their stories. Uh, just think about it this way. Uh, in the Lord of the Rings, <laughs> Frodo doesn't achieve the quest, really. I mean, at the end of the day, mm. he doesn't mm-hmm. destroy the ring. At the end of the day, he puts the ring back on his finger and says, the ring is mine. He won't complete yes, his task. Yes. It's, it's a, according to Tolkien, it's a sudden, miraculous grace 
that allows the ring to be uh, to be destroyed, and it's destroyed not by Frodo, not by the Fellowship of the Ring, but by <laughs> a sudden miraculous grace, Gollum of all the unlikely creatures. So it that comes yes. from outside of Frodo, and it's the same uh, story, of course, in the Chronicles of Narnia. The children who are who are then thrust into the stable where they expect the worst of deaths, the worst fate they could imagine. They don't save themselves. It's Aslan, of course, who saves them and converts the stable into a portal into Aslan's country. And so again, grace, mercy, redemption, they have to come from the outside. That is deliberate in both of their stories. And that's what makes both their stories so remarkable, particularly Tolkien, because you keep thinking Frodo is going to Frodo and Sam are going to pull this off, this quest to destroy the ring on their own, but they don't. They don't. And that is that is Tolkien who understands the gospel of grace, Lewis who understands the gospel of grace, and we're drawn to their stories uh, in, in ways we can hardly describe, right? Mm, amazing. Uh, Dr. Joseph Leconte, you've, you've written the book, A Hobbit, A Wardrobe, but A Great War. We have you this week because of the 100th anniversary of the Great War. Do you mind leading us here in 2018 in prayer? I'd be happy to do that, Charles. Uh, blessed God, we thank you for every good gift, and we thank you for the lives and the legacy of these two men in particular, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. Thank you for how faithful they were uh, in their own callings, faithful to the gospel, faithful to you. Uh, thank you for the incredible example they are to us and the power of their works that continue to speak to us. And we ask you, God, that you'd help us in, in our own vocations, in our own callings, whatever they are, that we would be faithful. We'd stay at our posts. Uh, we wouldn't waver. We wouldn't be discouraged. But we'd find encouragement from these, these men, part of the great cloud of witnesses, to encourage us in our journey. And we thank you when we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Joseph Leconte at King's College in New York City. Thank you so much for sharing with us on this 100th anniversary of the Great War. Charles, thanks so much for having me. Great to be with you. Thank you for joining me today on this episode of Great Stories with Charles Morris. If you want to learn more about Dr. Joseph Leconte's book, A Hobbit, A Wardrobe, and A Great War, you can find a link in the show notes. And of course, if you want to hear more conversations like this, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also go to haventoday.org to sign up for our weekly email and discover additional episodes posted on the blog. Thank you for joining me once again on Great Stories with Charles Morris. <laughs>